One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Listeners, and welcome back to the Missing and Unexplained podcast. I want to thank all of you who have subscribed to the Patreon page, and if you haven't, head over there and check it out. You'll get early access to content as well as exclusive content, all for three bucks a month. Also, I have a sleek new website. You can check it out at themissingpod.com. Today, I have Jonathan Walzak on the show, who is an investigative journalist and host of the Missing in Alaska podcast. Missing in Alaska is about two congressmen who vanished from a small plane over Alaska in 1972. I don't want to say much more than that because the story that unravels is wild. I highly encourage you to go check out Missing in Alaska. I also can't promise there won't be any spoilers in this episode. Here's my conversation with John Walzak. Hey, John. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I want to jump right into it because uh, I gave a pretty lengthy introduction about you and your series Missing in Alaska. I'm curious, as, as someone else who, who relishes in telling stories, how did you come across the story about two missing congressmen? And then what was the moment or the thing that, you know, you decided this, I'm hooked. This is something I'm going to dedicate, you know, an extended, an extended period of time to. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious. What, what was that for you? So, so you're you're in British Columbia, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was uh, I was living in Seattle at the time. It's about ten years ago, and I was uh, writing for Seattle Weekly. And there was just an afternoon where it was kind of slow. Uh, so I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole of um, famous disappearances, and you know most of them I recognized. And then I, I just saw this this disappearance of these two you know U.S. congressmen who disappeared in 1972, and I'm, you know, I, I read a lot. I'm a nerd. I, I like history. I like politics. I was really surprised I hadn't heard of it before. So I just kind of went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole. And, um, you know, the biggest thing that surprised me is that nobody really recorded a comprehensive history of it. So surprisingly, there was, you know, there's no book. There's no real documentary other than a few one-off episodes of TV shows. 
So I started uh, making FOIA requests and getting records from the federal government here. And there were a bunch of times that I came close to giving up. I, I tried to do it as, as long as I could full time. And um, eventually uh, it was a <laughs> fine full time worker end up at a soup kitchen. Um, but I, I managed to, uh, to find something just in the nick of time where um, there was this one person who seemed incredibly inconsequential that I contacted them anyway as a very brief um, passing connection to the pilot. And that person connected me to somebody else. And then that person is the person who just broke the story open to me and made me aware of um, very serious allegations that weren't public and that I hadn't heard before. Wow. Um, so it sounds like you spent quite a bit of time uh, digging into it before you were like, hey, I've, I've really got something here. I'm curious, did you know from the beginning like this would make a great podcast? Like what, what was your motivation or thought process behind, you know, turning this into a podcast format? To be honest, I planned it as a book. So, um, well, I just like digging into things. I mean, it, it's just, I, I love doing archival research. I love research in general. I love reading. Um, so I, I did it as a personal project and uh, without any ulterior motive, um, I would have been happy uh, just doing it on my own. But then I, I wanted to initially do it as a book. Uh, so I wrote a book proposal. And I pitched it to publishers, uh, literary agents, and um, the same. I got the same feedback repeatedly, which is, "What's the ending? What's the ending? Um, this is a really fascinating story, but do you find the plane? And if you don't find the plane, then uh, you know we're, we're not interested." And I think that I, I thought it was really shallow, um, pretty crappy feedback, <laughs> which I, I know I'm biased, but. Uh, the, the stories that are the most fascinating, the ones that really stick with us are the ones that don't have definitive endings. And I would love for this story to have a definitive ending, as I'm sure you would um, with what you've worked on as well. But it, just because stories don't have clean, neat, tidy endings, uh, I don't think they shouldn't be told. Um, so I, I plan to do it as a book. And uh, when that didn't work out, I started looking into doing it either as a documentary or a podcast. Um, podcast was actually last on my list. And, uh, I, you know, I, I really don't know why. Um, and now that I kind of stumbled into it, I'm incredibly happy. I have, we have an amazing team of producers. And the ability to tell this story um, and layer it with music and the color uh, that we recorded in Alaska and archival news footage, it, it just makes it, incredibly rich um compared to, to text alone yeah and i asked that question because i thought it translated super well into a podcast i was hooked from from the first episode um that's interesting about the book proposal as well uh before we get too much into some of the behind the scenes stuff um i'm curious um these two congressmen um who were they like who were they of consequence in the political realm it seems like they were kind of a big deal for their time is that fair to say yeah, so Hale Boggs was a very important congressman. Um, he was the majority leader of the U.S. House of Representatives when he disappeared. Uh, he was next in line to be the Speaker of the House, uh, so extremely, extremely powerful um, man in D.C. And he played a key role in helping to shape legislation in the 60s, uh, civil rights legislation, for example, with LBJ. Um, and then Nick Begich, he was very important to Alaska, so he was a freshman congressman. He wasn't really big on the national stage yet, um, though some people speculated to me because he was so charismatic and earnest and everybody just loved him that he might have been 
maybe a future vice presidential candidate, for example. So Boggs was a, was a big deal. I mean, he served on the Warren Commission, which investigated the Kennedy assassination. Um, and he was just at a key place at a key moment in American history. Uh, and then Begich was Boggs for Alaska on a, on a state level, on a, a smaller smaller level. But he was very influential in shaping Alaskan history. One of the uh, things that stood out the most to me as a fellow podcaster and, and someone who really digs into their stories as well is you clearly did a lot of research for this. Uh, you talk about that a little bit in the podcast, but I get the sense that there's also probably a lot more that went on behind the scenes that you didn't share. I'm wondering, can you tell me about what it was like to unearth these documents? I mean, obviously you're dealing with a very sensitive uh, political subject as well. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away about the story, but, but there's probably a lot of people who didn't want you finding certain things um you know what what was it like trying to find that primary material like was it pretty plentiful or was it a bit of a struggle it was a little bit easier because this was 50 years ago so i you know i have a running list of stories that interest me and some are more recent and those are incredibly hard to get anything worthwhile from the government Uh, it's always a battle to get anything from the fbi for example but because this was long ago it was it was long enough that it was a little bit less sensitive for the government to release documents, but um, still recent enough that there were people alive uh, who were primary sources. So um, the first thing I did was get as many records as I could from the government. So I filed FOIA requests with the FBI, um, you know, the Army, the Coast Guard, the Air Force, anybody that I could. And, um, you know, I found some interesting things in that. And then really past that, it was going into archives. Uh, so I came down, actually moved to New Orleans uh, to dig into archives at Tulane University, which houses Hailbox papers. And I, I came for a few months, and I'm, I'm still here eight years later, which is a, <laughs> a very New Orleans thing. Um, but uh, the archives were an incredible resource. They are an incredible resource to anybody who wants to, to research I mean, nearly anything. They're, they're underutilized and underfunded, and I've always found every archivist to be extremely helpful <laughs> and really happy and grateful that someone's using their resource. Um, it, it was it was just really cool to look at all these primary documents. So, for example, Tulane, like I said, houses the Boggs papers. So I got to handle original Warren Commission papers. I got to uh, handle um, you know letters from presidents and, and from celebrities uh, to Hale Boggs. Uh, Hale Boggs, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, was on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico, and a helicopter flew over him and dropped a note and a bottle, and it said, basically, the president needs you to get back to B.C., so I, I found that original note uh, in the files when I was doing research. Um, I found letters from psychics that wrote uh, after the plane disappeared, so it was, a, it was an incredible amount of color um, that it added to the story, and, you know, and then I also found things that I think maybe probably people accidentally put into the archives. So, for example, I found some life insurance documents um, that I, I have no idea in Alaska that I, I don't know how they ended up there, but I, I can't imagine that, that that was on purpose. It might have been an accident. So it's kind of a treasure hunt. Yeah, and 
it really shows uh, in the research and the narrative that you tell, like how much research you did. And, and as someone who is also a nerd when it comes to wanting to go into the archives and research and touch the history, um, it was much appreciated. So that, that question was really for me. I don't, I don't know how much our listeners will, will really get from that. But, uh, but I love what you said about the archives and how important they are to stories like this. One of the things, and you know what, it, the thing that I guess irked me the most about your podcast, and not necessarily it was, it was because of anything that you did, but it wasn't because there isn't necessarily a, a, a neat and tidy ending, is that some of the people you just couldn't talk to because they're not here anymore. And one of those people, uh, to me, one of the most fascinating people in your story is Jerry Paisley. And without spoiling too much, uh, I know that's kind of tricky given, you know, where he fits, sits in the story. But, um, can you tell me who Jerry was and how significant he was to kind of the catalyst for the plot of your, of your story? Sure. Yeah. Jerry is a very fascinating guy. Um, he's someone who is a self-styled philosopher. But uh, he was a member of the criminal underworld, so he had ties to two prominent mafia families. And without giving away too much, he also had ties to someone um, very close to the disappearance. So Jerry's story is integral to Michigan, Alaska, just looking at him as a person, um, at the claims that he made, at his relationship with certain key characters in the story, um, and trying to evaluate whether or not he was telling the truth, it's one of the, the key questions of, of the show. So, the, you know, the two key questions of the show, number one, where's the plane? Um, and number two was Jerry telling the truth. So um, I don't know how to get too much into it without spoiling the show. But uh, if you want to ask me anything else specific, I'm happy to. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to, um, like I said, I'm doing this for my listeners, but I'm also doing this a little bit for me. So I am going to I am going to ask a follow up. Um, you know, again, and you, you can be as specific as you want, because I think even if, if people know, you know, and after this, they research who Jerry Paisley is, they should still go listen to the series because it, it doesn't reveal everything. Um, do you, what do you think as an investigative journalist? Like, what did your gut say when you were when you were talking to all these people, um, you know, seeing all these accounts of things that Jerry claimed? Like, you know, where was your I guess, for lack of a of a better phrase, like where was your bullshit meter at with Jerry? Was it was it pretty high or do you think he was mostly telling the truth about a lot of the claims he made? Hello, nerds. Come listen to the History Nerds United podcast, and let's make history fun again. We interview today's best authors, whether they are established Pulitzer Prize winners or someone debuting their first book. Let us show you that history is not a boring class you took in high school, but a place where the best stories come from. And we don't just cover history. We also love to chat about true crime, biographies, memoirs, and so much more. So head on over to History Nerds United, and let us introduce you to your new favorite book and learn the story behind the story. History Nerds. Um, it's interesting. I, I try to avoid giving too much of my um, impression in the show because I want people to make up their own decision. But that said, my gut is that he was telling the truth to a degree. So I think by and large, he told the truth. I think he probably changed some of the details, and that's an opinion that's shared by some of the members of law enforcement that spoke with him. Um the fact that he had such a key connection to someone involved uh, or tied to the disappearance, uh, that in and of itself is just, it, it's either an absolutely incredible coincidence um, or 
there's something to what Jerry said, the claims that he made. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are obviously there are coincidences and even grand coincidences in the world. But um, I also think that, you know, a, a big thing with this story is that there was a really easy explanation. And that was that the plane disappeared in bad weather, which is, as I say in the show, it's Alaska. It's a small plane, bad weather. It's it's just it's the obvious answer. And one of the things that I really try hard to say is that's possible. Um, I, you know, I, if I could prove one way or another that one of these, uh, scenarios was the truth that I, I would, but, um, I just try to be as honest as possible with people. But in terms of Jerry, I mean, I, I think that there are too many coincidences. I think that, um, there's some truth to what he said at the very least. Yeah, and I won't say too much more than that. I, I tend to agree with you as well. Um, you know, it seems like he didn't have a lot of things to gain from not telling the truth. But let's move on because I, I wanted to – it's a good transition to go from Jerry to talking about um, just trying to track down what I would call uh, – and this is my term, uh, you know, quote-unquote shady characters because there are um, some seemingly shady people in, in this story. Um, what really stands out to me after listening to the podcast is your time in Arizona. Um, it seems like you had some pretty odd things happen to you um, and some pretty strange interactions. I'm wondering as a whole, whether it was in Arizona, Alaska, or, you know, just doing, you know, maybe some correspondence over the phone, but, um, what's it like trying to track down people who seemingly have, uh... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. CD Pass and maybe aren't the most um, affable when it, coming, when it comes to talking to journalists. Like, is that something that... Um, you know, made you nervous, but it was obviously something that you maybe had to do. I'm just curious, like, what, what was your mindset like, uh, you know, trying to track down some of these these people who, you know, probably didn't, you know, want you to talk to them? Well, I really wanted to find these people. And, um, you know, it, I felt a little bit safer because they're old. <laughs> so, you know, people joke with me about the mob and the mafia. And, and you know, that's, that's part of the story. But, I, I traveled extensively in late 2019, right before COVID, with uh, one of our producers, Paul. And I always joked that uh, I was going to sacrifice him to the bears or to the mobsters. Because <laughs> Paul, Paul's like six two or six three, so um, which we, we have an amazing team, and uh, I'm very grateful to them. But in terms of talking to shady people, um, I was worried 
Yeah, I was worried about our physical safety at points. Um, you know, a great example of that is there's the, the son of one of the key players that I was trying to find. Um, I found him, and uh, his name is Steve Fowler. Uh, his father, Gene Fowler, is a key player. Um, he's still, still alive, actually, uh, in this story. And I found Steve at the last minute. Um, I, it was like 12, you know, midnight, one in the morning, something like that. And uh, we had a limited number of days in Phoenix and in Tucson. And um, I, so I, I found Steve and he agreed to meet with us. Um, we showed up at his house and uh, Paul and I were getting out of the car. Just see this door open. Nobody's standing in the door. It's just empty. It, it's very, uh, it's, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> so I, it, was I afraid that I would be killed? Not really. And I, you know, though I joked it'd be a nice ending for, for the show, for at least for everybody else involved. <laughs> great, Morbid. great dramatic ending, ending, ending for the podcast. If, uh, if, you know, there, there's, there's your ending, but, um, no, but, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, some people that you think will be friendly aren't, and some people that you're kind of worried about, uh, end up being super friendly. So Steve is an example. Uh, his father was accused accused of partaking in a crime, and I figured he'd be really upset that we contacted him. Um, was a little weary of meeting with him, especially when the door swung open and nobody was standing in the doorway. Uh, but he ended up being incredibly friendly. Um, I just talked to him a few days ago. He's uh, become something of a friend, actually. Um, so, you know, it... it we were we were careful. Uh, we Paul was basically the getaway driver, so I you know we, we traveled with other members of the team too. But Paul was there for everything. So um, you know, knocking on the doors of some of these uh, these old mobsters, um, you know, some of them I I knew they were home. I, I heard people speaking. I heard uh, the dogs go crazy and the TV shut off when I showed up at the door. And I you know I, I wasn't concerned that somebody would kill me. But I was more concerned that somebody would be unstable and, and attack us because that's that's just something that happens. You talk to people, people involved with crimes, whether they're the perpetrators, um, or you know, you're trying to, to find out more about people that were victims. Even people, families get upset, sons get upset, the people themselves get upset. So um, I just interviewed somebody else the other day who was a, a crime reporter in New York, and I was talking to him. Um, and asking him, and he was just, you know, he's been attacked multiple times during his career. So I think physical safety is definitely a concern, um, especially especially in the current political environment where the press is seen as an enemy. It almost doesn't matter who you are. I can't tell you how many times people joke to me about fake news and you're one unstable person away from, from being attacked. So, um I was less worried about being killed by the mafia and more worried about some kind of physical attack. So we were, we were careful in how we approached people. Um, you know, very aware in approaching homes and knocking on doors, for example. Um, and, and typically we had a kind of a getaway plan. Yeah. It seems like you, you went about it uh, very intelligently and um, you know, it is, it is at the same time, like you said, it is good suspense and drama for the series too. Like there were moments where, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, so that's, that's, that's a really interesting answer. Uh, I guess besides, and I also wanted to say it's, it's nice and I should have asked this, but it's nice that, um, a lot of people did come forward and talk to you because it sounded like there were some people who maybe, um, you thought, or even as a listener, we would think would be reluctant, but we're actually pretty open and honest, 
um, and that really, really helped. So you, you do have two sides to that coin. I'm wondering beyond difficult people, um, you know, and this is more of me being a podcaster asking, you know, did you come across any other barriers trying to put a story like this into a podcast format? Um, like you said, you started wanting to do this as a book, but that didn't really work out. I'm wondering, did you hit, did you hit any walls that you kind of had to work around in terms of, you know, presenting this as a podcast? You know, honestly, not really. And I think that I really attribute that to iHeart. iHeart's been an incredible creative partner. Um, if they weren't, I, w- I wouldn't say that. But they, they've been really, really, really supportive. And we have an amazing team. And, you know, as you as you know, I, it's it's something that takes an enormous amount of energy out of you. It, it's very, it's extremely rewarding, but it's also tiring. And the fact that we have um, just a, a group of people that I, I really like as people uh, and also really respect as producers, uh, that, that's very helpful. So it, it, barriers in terms of putting this together. Um, I know when I was pitching it as a podcast, I, I spoke with uh, three major media companies. Um, I pitched it to three major companies. Uh, iHeart obviously said yes. Um, another major company, uh, I spoke with two executives there and um, they gave me basically the same reaction as uh, when I was pitching it as a book, which is we, you know, we really want a, a neat, tidy ending. But this this other company, uh, who I will not name, was basically like, why why are people going to care? Like, why would people care about these congressmen? Why why should people care about this this story? Like, I you know, will people really care? And um, and then the, the third company just said no. So it was, <laughs> not going to lie, it was extremely rewarding when we ended up doing as well as we did because I think the answer I gave to the second company was marketing, um, which is, this is just, I've, I've believe, always believed in the story. Um, you know, I'm grateful that people see me and the show as successful, but I think it really boils down to the, the story itself. Um, if you don't have an interesting story to tell, then it doesn't matter how well you tell it. And you talked about, we, we just talked about danger. Um, the thing that I tried really hard to do is to be authentic and to tell the story with integrity, um, especially reporting a story about Alaska. And it's something I mentioned in the show. I, I talked to a lot of people in Alaska, a lot of Alaskans um, who were used to having their state and the people there portrayed in this really two-dimensional way. Um, you know, everybody's a, a Bush person or a, a fishmonger who's on the high seas or, and so I, you know, even some of the other shows that have covered this disappearance of, of Hale Boggs and Nick Begich, they've, they've done a really shady uh, job of it. So for example, there was one show and um, I talked to people who participated in that show um, and they went and pretended like they searched a certain glacier, but they were actually on a, entirely different glacier and it's, you know, reality TV is contrived. So, but I I think that there's, there's a happy middle between um, being really stodgy and stuffy and being completely fake in reality TV. And I I think that, you know, to be honest, that's kind of the, the territory that interests me is there are really interesting, fascinating stories that I think quote traditional journalists don't really go after because they seem very, conspiratorial and sensational, but there's also a really um, level-headed way to approach them uh, often that hasn't been done. And to find those stories that kind of meet that middle, um, that that's what I look for, I think. 
Yeah. Wow. Uh, that was really inspiring in a lot of ways. I, I think I like your determination to stick with a story when you know that there's something there, despite the obstacles in front of you. Um, that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad I heart, um, decided to, to, to help take this on with you and, and it came to fruition. Um, you said you can't, you know, before this, um, that you can't really talk too much about what's next, but you do have something else coming down the pipe. Is that, is that right? Yeah, so I always have a list of stories that I'm looking into and, um, you know, getting records that takes forever. So I usually get the ball rolling way, way ahead of time because it takes months and even years sometimes. So um, I always have uh, several stories uh, in the cauldron. Um, and I am focusing on one in particular right now, and I'm hoping to uh, drop a new project later this year. Um, I can't get into it too much uh, now, I will tell you about a story that did not work out, though, um, one that interested me. Uh, maybe you're familiar with it, uh, your listeners. Um, but it was Force Fen's Treasure. Uh, and so I, I've, it's one of the stories that um, – are, are you familiar with Force Fen? No, no. I, I'm really curious and intrigued now, though. Okay, so this is not the thing that I'm working on right now, but it's something that was on my radar. So Force Fen was an antique dealer and collector who – uh, maybe something like 10 years ago, hid a chest or said he hid a chest with about a million dollars worth of treasure in it uh, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And he wrote a poem uh, and said that there were, I think, nine clues in the poem. Um, so in 2015, I, I went with my partner and I went to uh, New Mexico just for fun and uh, went to two places that we, we thought might be the spot where the treasure was. And it was also just an excuse to go to New Mexico because it's a, it's a beautiful place. Um, and, you know, of course we didn't find a treasure. But I, I thought after missing Alaska, um, to, to hunt for a treasure instead of trying to get all these, like, dangerous, angry people to talk to me seemed like a less stressful thing, especially in the middle of COVID. Um, but then, uh, you know, I emailed with Force Fen and then, I think on a Friday and then Sunday he announced that someone found the treasure and then um, a few months later he died. So that, that's an example of a story that really interested me, um, a more fun story that didn't end up, didn't end up working out um, because someone found the treasure and then the, the main character is no longer with us. So, uh, so <laughs> always have a few stories going um, and maybe I should focus on stories with fewer people who are, octogenarians i need to focus on a, a younger younger group of uh of, of folks maybe <laughs> that's uh wow yeah that, that would have been a great story it seems like timing is a big thing uh in the storytelling world uh, i mean unless you uh especially if you want to talk to people right it's one thing to to tell a story just through documents and archival material but to interview people um you know you kind of need them to be alive i think that helps a little bit right yeah, it does. And I, I'll say the archives part um, and the records part, that's in many ways the easy part. The hard part is getting people to talk to you. And I know you have experience with this, um, dealing with the Stuka family. Um, when it, it, it's something that I, I was very open about uh, in the show, and it's something that truly bothers me to no end, is how to handle families and friends of people who have died or are missing. Um, I started my career at a newspaper in North Carolina, and I remember having to uh, talk to parents whose, whose kids had died. Um, I did a, I remember doing an interview one time with a gentleman who had just proposed uh, to his girlfriend, and then she was hit by lightning and killed. And I 
my editor told me to call him. I was, I dreaded it. I hated that part of the job. Um, it's something that still makes me uncomfortable. Um, I really, on one hand, there are these really fascinating, interesting stories that you want to tell. And on the other, you know, these were people and their family, especially with prominent cases, they're, they get tired of being hounded and, and being made to relive their grief over and over again. So try to start strike a balance of, um, you know, doggedness and humanity. And, and at a certain point, if people don't want to talk, I, as much as I want to talk to certain people, I, I respect their wishes. Now that said, if it's somebody like an alleged criminal who's a smart ass and doesn't want to talk to me and tries to play games, <laughs> I, I handle that differently. But, um, that's the tricky part, the, the people, but it's, it's always interesting. Like I said earlier to see who wants to speak. Cause sometimes people who seem maybe on the outside to be friendly, won't talk to you. And other times, um, people who you think are going to be really hesitant to speak to you really want to talk and you can never predict that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think also my interview style, like we were talking before you started recording, I, I feel like I come across sometimes as ADD to people. I, I really prepare for things and I can, uh, you know, I can converse about them, but I, I don't like to be super, super structured with interviews because it's just not how I talk naturally. And I think that it takes away um, from an interview to be too structured. It's good. It's good to have the bullet points. It's good to you know know what you want to hit. That's important. And to make sure you don't forget anything, but I tend just to be more conversational Um so yeah, I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. That was a uh, great way to wrap it up because uh, this has been very conversational and I'm not going to lie. I was a, a tad bit nervous to talk to you because I did enjoy the podcast so much and I was hoping that my uh, my questions were interesting enough for you to expand on. And uh, I just really appreciate you having uh, coming on the show and talking about the podcast. And uh, if, if anyone listening hasn't listened to Missing in Alaska, uh, please go check it out. I believe you can find it anywhere you get your podcast. I found it on iTunes, um, so I'm sure, or Apple Podcasts, sorry, not iTunes, um, but uh, it's it's out there, it's everywhere. Uh, go listen. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan Walzak. You can find a link to the podcast, Missing in Alaska, in the description, as well as my Patreon page. As always, thanks for listening to the Missing and Unexplained podcast with me, Tyler Hooper. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.